Most of the images of the Virgin Mary that you will see will look something like this, or some of the images that you might be familiar with, halo around her head, or uh, beautifully adorned with ornaments and all of this. And In fact, it's kind of difficult to find a picture of Mary that doesn't look something like this. All around the world, she is venerated as the Blessed Virgin or the Virgin Mother. She's sometimes called the Queen of Heaven by those who are of the Catholic persuasion. And uh, I assume you all know that Hail Mary, before it was a football pass, was in fact a prayer to the Virgin Mary. She's considered by many to be an intercessor who's gone to heaven with whom people here on earth can pray. And it's very basic to Roman Catholic doctrine and understanding that Mary is, is worshipped. Now, if you look at this image and these images of Mary and, and the, what you see today in the world, the worship of Mary that takes place, the whole thing would have completely appalled the biblical Mary. She would not have stood for this. She would not have agreed with it at all. In Scripture, Mary is not the object of worship. She is a worshiper herself. People aren't praising her. She is praising God. I think that's exactly how Mary would want it. You know, as we look at Mary in the scriptures, we see someone who was, in fact, a worshiper. Not a godlike figure that the Catholics often portray, but a biblical character with a heart of worship. I've entitled our message this morning, Mary, a Heart of Worship. We wanted to spend a little time in Luke looking at Mary because here's the, here's the issue. Mary has been so exalted by Catholicism that sometimes we on the other side of things can downplay, you know, well, she really wasn't all that, which is true. She wasn't all that. But let's not short sell Mary either. She's a remarkable woman, and I think it's worthwhile for us in this Christmas season to slow down and talk about Mary and what we can learn from her. But let's also remember this. We're not here to celebrate and worship Mary exclusively, right? I mean, we're not here to worship her at all. But rather to see how her life points us back to the Lord. It is him who is worthy of our worship. And I think this passage here in Luke 1 really steers us in that direction. Because here we have the example of Mary's heart, this heart of worship. We might ask the question... What was Mary's frame of mind? You know, what is she thinking about? Where is her heart at? You know, last week we talked about Luke chapter 1, verses 26 all the way down to 38, where the announcement happens. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and gives her this marvelous, incredible news. You are going to be the mother of the Messiah. That would have been a lot to take in. And yet we see even her in her response to Gabriel this humble, submissive attitude. But you got to wonder, and and I can't help but wonder when I come to a text like this, what, what was racing through her head in the days and weeks that followed? Well, we're not told. We know, though, that rather than sticking around in Nazareth, she embarks immediately down to see her relative Elizabeth. You might recall, when the angel Gabriel appeared, he said, this will be a sign to you that your cousin Elizabeth has who is aged, is now with child. So Mary goes out seeking that sign, and she goes down to Judea. In fact, it says in verse 39, she arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. 
She didn't wait. She went immediately to the hill country of Judea. And there she meets Zechariah and Elizabeth. Again, the, the events are recorded in 39 to 45 where Mary shows up. And when she does, the baby that is in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Now you might remember that is John the Baptist. So this Unborn John the Baptist leaps for joy at the voice of Mary, and then Elizabeth turns and blesses Mary with this wonderful blessing. Again, Elizabeth is not indicating that Mary is some kind of uh, again, godlike figure, but rather just blessing her because she is blessed in a particular way in getting to be, have this role in God's unfolding plan of redemption. Mary, in turn, responds to the blessing with a song. And here is where we really get to see what was Mary thinking about? What was her state of mind during all of this? Well, it kind of bubbles out in this song. And I hesitate to even call it a song because you might notice in verse 46 it says, And Mary said. It doesn't say she sang this. But it's probably pretty appropriate to call it a song. It's very much structured like the Psalms in the Old Testament. You know, the book of Psalms has this meter to it. It has this parallelism. And all of that is evidenced right here in Mary's song. So I'm, I'm comfortable calling it a song, even though she doesn't sing it particularly. Traditionally, this passage is known as the Magnificat. Because in Latin, her first words are magnificat anima mea dominum, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. And so for many generations, this has been called the Magnificat. And it's a wonderful hymn of adoration. And in it, we get a glimpse of Mary's heart, a heart of worship. Let me state it like this. Mary embodies this truth. A heart of worship responds to God with praise and adoration. A heart of worship responds to God with praise and adoration. And that's what we see flowing out of her in this passage. Now, I want to break it down as we work through. In fact, what I'll do is I'm going to read the whole passage again. And then uh, we'll kind of work over it several times. It doesn't necessarily break down into, you know, first, second, third sections. Although you could do it that way. But rather, I want to make observations on the whole thing. And I want to ask this question. What makes a heart of worship? You know, if Mary has it, what is it? What is it that she's evidencing in this hymn that reveals her heart? Well, let's read together verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant. Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So what makes a heart of worship? Well, first of all, a heart of worship magnifies the character of God. 
magnifies the character of God. And this is so obvious that it almost doesn't need to be mentioned, right? I mean, if we're going to be, a, if we're going to have the heart that Mary had, if we're going to be worshipers, then we need to magnify God's great character. And yet I've found that sometimes it's the things that are most obvious are the things that have to be said most frequently. Because again, we tend to forget the obvious things. And I think we need to reinstate this over and over again, that worship and the heart of worship is really about magnifying God, his character. So let's look at it. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Again, that's where that word magnificat comes from. Now, as you read this whole passage, it does sound very much like the Psalms. I already mentioned that. Uh, Even the way it plays out, you know, look at verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. You could drop that right in the book of Psalms and it would sound very much at home, wouldn't it? Uh, The literary parallelism throughout, you know, the soaring praise, it's just like the Psalms. In fact, one old-time preacher, W. Graham Scroge, once said, this is the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. However, as you study the passage and as you kind of get into the words and phrases more, it's not just echoing the Psalms. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of parallels between this and Hannah's song at the beginning of 1 Samuel. In fact, take 1 Samuel chapter 2 and uh, Luke 1 and put them next, next to each other and you'll see a lot of those parallels. But it's not just Psalms and it's not just 1 Samuel. There are echoes in this, this passage from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalm, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So there's a lot going on here. And it seems that Mary is bringing all of what she knows about Scripture into her prayer. Which, by the way, this is sort of a side note. It ought to remind us that in this heart of worship, it's a scripture-saturated heart of worship. That when we as worshipers, if we're going to follow this example, ought to ourselves saturate our minds and hearts with scripture. You know, many of the great hymns that we sing are based on verses or passages, texts of scripture. In fact, even the ones that we love best, you can go back and find verses that they're alluding to. And I think all of our worship ought to be strained through the grid of Scripture so that even even our worship ought to sound, in some ways, like Scripture, right? That our worship should be shaped by the Word of God. That's kind of an aside. But let's take a closer look at what Mary models here. She proclaims, my soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, her whole being proclaims the greatness of God. Now, the word translated magnify here is the Greek word megalune. And you could hear right there in the word, the prefix, mega. And it means to make something great. In this case, she's saying, my soul makes the Lord great. Which brings up the question, you know, how can we make the Lord great? I mean, isn't he a great God? Doesn't need our praises. Certainly our praises add nothing to God, right? Because he's already infinite. So in what sense do we magnify the Lord? Well, it's true. We don't add anything to him. We don't uh, 
make him larger in any sense. But I think the word magnify is actually really helpful here. Because when you take something and you put it under a magnifying glass or under a microscope, you don't change the object at all. It stays the same. It's, it's un, unaltered. And yet, you look through the magnifying glass, you look through the microscope, and you get a much bigger picture of it. Things that you didn't appreciate on the little tiny seed are suddenly now blown up to ten times their size, and you can see the little design, and you can see the, the little details that you couldn't otherwise notice. And that's, in a sense, what Mary is saying here. My soul magnifies the Lord. I want to put him on display so that he is seen to be greater. I'm not changing anything about God himself, but rather the Lord should be seen with greater clarity and precision. So our praise doesn't make God great intrinsically, but allows us to see his greatness and for others to see God's greatness through our praise. Look at the next not line, though. Verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Again, these thoughts are parallel. What it means to magnify the Lord is also that you rejoice in God. And here she says, my spirit, just as she said my soul earlier, my whole being, rejoiced in God my Savior. She rejoices in him, delights in him. Interestingly, she calls God her Savior, and that's a a word that Luke uses all over in his gospel. He likes to refer to the Lord as Savior, the Deliverer, Redeemer, the one who rescues. Indeed, that's what she extols God for. She rejoices in the one who has delivered her. Notice, though, the context for her praise in verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So God has done something in her life. God has, has stepped in. And, of course, she's referring back to the announcement that she is part of this privileged line that will lead to the Messiah. She says, she's regarded my lowly estate. I was nothing, and yet God lifted me up. But here's what I want to focus on, because, again, she magnifies the character of God. As we study this passage, you will see that she draws out different qualities characteristics, attributes, if you will, of God, which I think is instructive for us. Our praise should center around the character of God. Mary here extols God because, first of all, his holiness. She extols God because of his holiness. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. We could, we could go back over all the scriptures in, in the Bible that talk about God's holiness, that holy is he. The word holy means to be set apart, to be different. Now, that is true in two senses with God. He is holy. He is set apart as indifferent from his creation. God has the unique distinctive of being the creator. Everything else that exists is a created thing, a creature. Now, granted, human beings are different than animals, and plants are different than animals or people. So all are created differently, but all have the distinction of being created things. You and I are created things. God alone is the uncreated one. 
So he is totally unique, wholly different than his creation, set apart completely. We also know that God is holy in his moral character. He's set apart from sin. We read in 1 John that in God there is no darkness at all. In him is light and that only. So there is no moral imperfection. Just as all of creation is impacted by the fall of man. All of creation has been infected, if you will, by sin. God is totally unaffected. He is set apart from all moral filthiness. So he is holy. And that's one of the things that Mary highlights here. It's also interesting to me that if you look and worship in the Bible, it almost always starts with God's holiness. You know, whenever uh, Isaiah has his vision of the Lord in the temple, you know, what is the declaration of the seraphim? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even in Revelation, when you read about the declarations of praise in heaven, it's holy, holy, holy. So this is a good starting point for worship, is to realize that God is not like us. He is wholly different. But not only that, she also recognizes and extols God because of his mercy. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. The whole song here centers around God's mercy, particularly shown to Mary and through Mary to the whole world. The word mercy here is oftentimes a stand-in for the Hebrew term, chesed, loving kindness, God's faithful covenant-keeping love. It says, and his mercy is on those who fear him. This is really good news coming on the heels of God's holiness. Because if God were a holy God, totally separate from us, totally without imperfection, totally morally holy, well, he would have every right to look on his creation, tainted as it is with sin, with disgust and hatred. And yet he has mercy on his creation. He has mercy on those who have sinned. Particularly, though, she says he has mercy on those who fear him. So those who, who walk in the fear of the Lord. Not who fear him in just abject terror, but rather this reverential, worshipful fear. It's not only that, but a mercy that lasts from generation to generation. This is an unfailing mercy. Mary is counting on such faithfulness for future generations. I think this is something that we can stop and be thankful for this morning and something that we ought to praise God for is his mercy, which despite his holiness and his, his wrath, he has shown mercy to unworthy sinners like ourselves. Despite his perfection, despite the fact that he is high above the heavens and earth, he is likewise merciful. Not only that, she extols God for his power, for his power. You notice in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. If you go back up to verse 49, she says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. God's power is on display. Our worship should revel in the greatness and power of our great God. This is something that we can rejoice in. He is a God of great power. There's no comparison. So 
Sometimes we say that he is omnipotent, all-powerful, boundless and infinite in power. That, that is, too, is a reason to celebrate. It's not like God is limited in his strength that somehow, perhaps by some way, Satan could overcome God. Or that man in his united strength could somehow oppose God. No, Psalm 2 says, when mankind rages against God, God just sits in heaven and he laughs. The, 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 all the strength of man, all the strength that has ever been conjured upon earth, doesn't scare God in the slightest. He is a God of great power, but not only that, of faithfulness. Of faithfulness. Uh, back in verse uh, 50, she talks about his mercy from generation to generation. It's an unfailing mercy. It's a faithful mercy. Go down to verses 45 and 55. Mary talks about he who has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He's helped Israel. He's been faithful to Israel generation after generation. I don't think I need to remind you that Israel was not exactly the model of faithfulness to God. Israel made a lot of mistakes. And they weren't exactly uh, a good example. And yet God continued to keep his faithful love upon Israel through all of that. And now she sees it even being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. That God has continued to help his servant. He continues to remember his love. He continues to remember his covenant that he's made with them. He is a faithful God. He's worth, worthy of worship because he's a faithful God and his word will never be broken. Finally, though, I want to point out, she also extols God because of his justice. His justice. Look at verses uh, 42 and following. Eh, 51. 51 and following. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty, exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. So you have this big reversal here. Those who are lowly are going to be exalted. Those who are proud will be put down. Those who are poor will be fed. And those who are rich will go empty. You see, this is one of those elements of God's justice. That in the end, God will give to each according to their due. That God will do justice. And, and the rich oftentimes are the ones who proudly strut about as if they have everything. And the, the poor are taken advantage of. God says, not so. I will, I will bring all things to the level. He is a God of justice. Again, something we can rejoice in, take heart in. Here's the point I want to make, though, is that all of God's attributes ought to draw us to worship and praise. I don't think this is something we, we probably think about enough. And I appreciate, you know, even when we have prayer and praise time here at our church, we regularly hear mention of God's love, of God's faithfulness, of God's uh, justice, of God's mercy. That's a healthy thing because that's what ought to draw us to worship. You know, when Mary uh, praises God, it's like her heart is overflowing with the character of God. That's what inspires praise in her. She sees the Lord and gives praise to him for that. So here's, here's a challenge for all of us as we go into this next week. And that is, take some deliberate time each day 
to simply identify some character, quality, attribute of God and say, I'm going to take four or five minutes today with nothing else and just praise God because he is love. Praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God because of this particular attribute. I think that would be a very healthy thing for us to do because it calls our hearts back to worship God himself. So as we see Mary's heart, it magnifies the character of God. I want to point out a second quality of this heart of worship. What makes a heart of worship? Secondly, it delights in the wonder of God. It delights in the wonder of God. Again, I see this all over Mary's song here in this passage. She is in awe of God because of what he's done. And I think... When our worship is like Mary's and when our heart is like hers, it should cause us to be in awe and wonder of the Lord. I guess the question would be, when was the last time you really felt a sense of awe and wonder at God? I think part of our problem is, at least at times, we can be so commonplace about God. After all, you know, we're in church Christians, believers, you know, we, we talk about God. We come to church, we learn about God. We sing about him. We might teach our kids or grandkids about the Lord. And so it's almost like God is just a part of our lives, which is wonderful, right? I mean, God should be a part of our lives. But in being so comfortable talking about God, sometimes we fail to see his beauty in its fullness. Kind of like, a, I don't know, a piece of furniture at your home. You know, maybe it's a beautiful piece of furniture, but it's been sitting in that corner for 25 years, and you hardly even notice it's there anymore. And so it is with God. It's like he's so much a part of our life, it's, I, I kind of hardly even notice that he's there. And that's particularly true for those who study about God. We can become so familiar that we're no longer captivated by the beauty of the Lord. B.B. Warfield, who was one of the great Princeton theologians of the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the last of the great Princeton theologians before that seminary went in a liberal direction. He, on on an occasion in 1911, spoke to his students about this very danger. This is what he said back in 1911. The great danger of the theological student lies precisely in his constant contact with divine things. They may come to seem common to him because they are customary. As the average man breathes the air and basks in the sunshine without a thought of God's goodness, who makes the sun to rise on him though he is evil and sends rain upon him though he is unjust, so you may come to handle even the furniture of the sanctuary and and, uh, with never a thought above the gross material earthly things of which it is made. He even reflects on the story of redemption and says, that in being so familiar with God's story of how Christ came to save us and the cross, he says, it may become to you a mere series of facts. He closes his address by saying, God forgive you. You are in danger of becoming weary of God. You are in danger of becoming weary of God. It's not a matter of we just discard God and say, well, no, I'm not interested in worship but rather we just become so ho-hum about God that we hardly stop to notice his greatness. Even, even without a seminary education, 
we're in danger of being too common with God. But the heart of worship that we see with Mary calls us to awe and wonder. And this, I believe, is all over Mary's prayer. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud of the imagination of their heart. He has put down the mighty in their thrones and exalted the lowly. Yeah, I read a passage like that, and I definitely come away with the sense that Mary here is not just sort of reciting things she read about in the Old Testament. But rather, she's standing back and saying, God, how awesome you are. It's almost like she's in wonder of the Lord. And maybe it's because she's seen this playing out in real time, if you will. You know, she's seen how God has taken a lowly girl like herself and and placed her in the unfolding divine plan. And it's like, wow, God really does lift up the lowly. I've read about that in the Old Testament. I've read about how God took a a lowly shepherd boy and made him king. But now, it's almost like her eyes are open and she says, God, you are awesome. Standing in wonder of him. In amazement. You know, talk about uh, God's arm lifting up the the lowly and and putting down the proud. You know, Mary has seen never before, like never before, God's hand working in bringing down the proud and exalting the humble. You know, worship should cause us to have this kind of awe, this kind of wonder at God. You know, when we gather for worship, what are we doing? Are, are we just trying to pass the time? Are we trying to do something that's churchy? Or are we really trying to be reminded and to remind one another in song and in, in our worship that God is indeed an awesome God. And that we ought to step back and, and have a realization of that. In fact, there ought to be in some sense that we leave church walking out saying, wow, God is greater than I imagined. My heart is just full thinking about how good our God is, how wonderful he is. And I, I feel like I've seen him in a new light today because of the presentation of the word, because of the, the way we've gathered Again, the problem is we can be so distracted. We can be so uh, turned away because, again, God's just a part of our life. I think about it like this, like nature itself. There's so much beauty in nature. I mean, just pick a blade of grass, look at it real closely, and you'll notice you know, the patterns on it or a leaf. A great example would be a snowflake, you know. Every snowflake different, each with these tiny little crystalline design. And yet, when you see snow falling outside, you're not thinking to yourself, well, normally you're not thinking to yourself, wow, what a beautiful snowflake. What a wonderful creator. You're thinking, oh, great, it's snowing again. I'm going to have to shovel or, or whatever. Because, again, we don't stop and, and take in the wonder of creation. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the British philosopher, thinker, an author once said, the world will never starve for want of wonders. There are so many wonders in our world, things of beauty to behold. He said, we'll never starve for want of wonders, but only for wonder. So what, what we're starving for is people who will take in and will truly be in awe of those wonders. 
that abound around us. I think I've used this illustration before, and maybe you'll remember it, but I'll never forget this. When I was, I think, probably still in high school, uh, we had a, a Bible conference at my church, and the speaker that year was Dr. John Whitcomb, a great, one of the great theologians from the 20th century. And uh, our family took Dr. Whitcomb out to dinner that evening, and as we were leaving the restaurant, we opened up the door, and there was this beautiful sunset out ahead of us. And I remember specifically, I walked out the door, I saw the sunset, and my mind registered, that's a beautiful sunset. I didn't say it audibly, but I thought it. I was like, wow, that's beautiful. And out behind me walks Dr. Whitcomb, and he says audibly, wow, what a beautiful creator. And it kind of stopped me for a second, because I realized he looked straight through that sunset, straight to the one who made it, and he was in awe and wonder of, of the Lord. And and to me, it was like, that's what I want to be. I want to be able to look through the beauty of creation and see, wow, what a great creator we have. Is that where your heart is at? Or is God more just ho-hum, you know, he's a part of my day, I pray to him, I talk about him, but do we really stand in awe of him? There's a third quality, though, to this heart of worship. What makes a heart of worship? Well, it includes a response to God. It includes a response to God. In fact, if we want to say it this way, worship is, is itself a response to God. After all, none of us are worshipers just naturally. God has to do a work in our heart. He has to do a work in our life, and then we respond to that. So all worship, in a sense, is a response to what God's already done. But we see this with Mary. She's responding, is she not, to what God has done in her life. We've already seen her response to the angel. Verse 38, right? Mary is confronted by Gabriel, and she says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. So she has this humble, submissive, obedient attitude. But notice in the passage, verses 48 and following, it says, For He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So her soul magnifies the Lord because the Lord has acted on her behalf. She's responding to what he has done in her life. And she says that clearly in verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. For me. Which brings me to a couple of thoughts on this matter of response. Worship is a response. We see that it is unavoidably personal. Worship is unavoidably personal. She says he's done great things for me. Don't confuse this. By saying it's unavoidably personal doesn't mean that it's me-centered. Worship is not about me. It's about God. Right? So Mary's not just making everything about her. It's not like she is insisting that everything revolves around her, but rather she's saying, this is my perspective, and God has done great things for me. Why would I not praise him for that? Indeed, if you have been saved by God's grace, right there you've got something to respond to, don't you? God has done great things for me. Even if he does nothing else good, quote-unquote, for me, the rest of my days, he saved my soul from the pit of hell and from sin. 
I'd say that's worthy of praise. So worship is unavoidably personal, not me-centered, but personal. And she makes it personal. She recognizes that God has done this for her, has regarded her lowly estate. Back in the 1700s, uh, many of you have heard of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. Many of our favorite hymns in our, in our worship are written by Isaac Watts, including Joy to the World. And in the 1700s, Isaac Watts was coming up against the practice in the Anglican church, which was the singing of psalms. They would sing directly from the Psalter. There's nothing wrong with that, but Watts was a little disturbed that people just sort of kind of dryly went through the motions of reciting the psalms. There wasn't any life to it. Their, their worship was more just recitation, and that's it. And he was kind of upset by this, and he expressed it to his dad and said, you know, I'm not, you know this isn't how it should be. And his dad reportedly said to him, um, you know, well, young man, if that's the way you feel, why don't you give us something better to sing? So Isaac Watts did, and he wrote 750 hymns during his lifetime. In fact, at one point, he was writing a hymn a week for his church. Now, Watts's hymns were controversial during his time because a lot of people felt like if it's not a psalm straight out of the Bible, you shouldn't be singing it. But there's another reason that his hymns kind of affected people is because he was deliberately personal. One of his most famous songs was, I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which right there, it's I, it's from my perspective. And people felt like we shouldn't be singing songs that say I or me in them. But I think Isaac Watts grasped this, that worship is undeniably, uh, unavoidably personal. That it's something that if we're responding, what are we responding to? It's something that is a personal thing that we take on as we praise God. Not just personal for Mary, but also personal in the life of the church or, in this case, of Israel. Look at verses 45 and, uh, 44 and 45. Excuse me, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now, this isn't personal to Mary, but rather to talk about God's faithfulness to Israel, to the broader community. So, yes, worship is personal, but it's more than just about me. It's about what God has done, the bigger picture, the larger picture, his redemption, his plan. So worship is personal, but it's not about us. It's God-centered, not man-centered. I also want to note that worship leads to transformation. Again, we've seen this with Mary, that uh, her heart has been turned towards the Lord, um, humble and obedient. Again, not only is worship itself a response, but also calls us to respond. So if we are in our worship reciting the truths of Scripture and reciting all that God is, if we're in awe and wonder of Him because of His great character, how ought we to respond to that? Well, Mary responds with praise. Great example, probably the best example you'll find in the New Testament is uh, the book of Romans, right? So the first 11 chapters of Romans are mostly doctrine. It's all explaining how God has worked. It begins with man and his sin, turned away from God, uh, altogether gone his own way. What hope is there for humanity? Well, 
the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ setting us free, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as all that doctrine is developed, suddenly we get to chapter 12 of Romans, and it says, therefore, now therefore, brethren, beloved brethren, right, uh, respond in this way. Uh, by the mercies of God, he says. Basically, right there in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God. In other words, all that I have just explained, all the mercy that we have just detailed in theological language, because of all that, we ought to respond. How? Offer your bodies living sacrifices. Offer yourselves all that you are. And then he says, this is your reasonable service. Another word, way to translate that word service is worship. This is your reasonable worship. Worship is, in fact, responding in obedience to what we have learned, what we have seen, what God is. In other words, because God's initiative, because of his mercy and saving to you, respond. Present yourselves. This is what reasonable worship looks like. You know, one definition, and I don't know that this captures everything there is to say about worship, but one definition of worship I, I encountered is this. Worship is bowing all that we are before all that he is. Bowing all that we are before all that he is. That really gets to the idea of the response. You know, as we look at Mary and, and her heart and this great hymn of praise that she, she brings up in Luke chapter 1, we get to see something of her thought process, what was going on in Mary's heart. And I, again, I'm just so impressed by Mary as a character because this is what flows out of her. And I think as we embrace the same type of heart, this heart of worship, you know, it ought to change us. And may we be a little bit more like Mary. In closing, I want to highlight two more things just kind of as we process all this and put it into practice. Two observations from Luke 1. If we're to have this kind of heart of worship, it means that our worship should be serious without being somber. Serious without being somber. In other words, let's take worship seriously. It's not just an afterthought. It's not something that's just uh, um, kind of an add-on, but rather... Let's be serious about magnifying the Lord, delighting in the wonder of God, and then responding to it. It should be serious, but it doesn't need to be somber. Again, some people take, you know, if we say, well, worship should be serious, then, okay, long faces, you know, it's got to be uh, sort of an emotionless experience. Not so. Worship can be serious, and we can take worship seriously, without being long-faced, um, you know, sad-expressioned, somber people. So worship should be serious without being somber. Secondly, our worship should be personal without being selfish. Again, I think Mary shows this, that in her song, it's a response to God. It's a personal thing for her. But it's not selfish. This is the mistake that often happens, is that worship is man-centered rather than God-centered, that it becomes about us rather than us responding to God. One of the things we always have to be on the lookout for is, 
In worship, is it, is it what I get out of it or what I give to it? Is this me serving God or is this kind of a, a boost for me? We ought not to make worship about us. It's about God. And Mary, I think, shows that clearly. Her prayer, her song is all about her awesome God whom she delights in. Again, may we have the same heart, the heart of Mary, a heart of worship. Let's pray.